0: Welcome to the show. On today's episode, I have Lauren Finnerty, a nurse practitioner at Victory Men's Health, here to discuss yet another misconception of testosterone therapy, and that is the thought that testosterone can somehow cause, quote, thick blood, which can in turn cause a heart attack, stroke, or blood clot. This, folks, is misinformation. If you've been told this by a medical provider, they either don't understand the difference between erythrocytosis and polycythemia, which we're gonna get in the weeds about today, don't practice evidence-based medicine, or haven't stayed up to date with all the medical literature, which unfortunately happens. I know we don't like to think about it, but it happens. Let's use primary care doctors, for example. They have a lot of other things they are treating, a lot of sick people they are seeing, and hormones more than likely isn't something they have spent much time doing continuing education on. More than likely, they have done little to no continuing education on hormones since graduating med school and how much time was spent covering hormones in school is probably even a little questionable. If you're an individual on testosterone that has been told to get off testosterone because of this, or maybe you're an individual considering testosterone but have not done so because of these concerns, Lauren and I are here to clear that up today. We're going to link numerous studies in the show notes to support today's conversation and arm you with the tools you might need if this topic comes up. So Lauren, let's get started and let's just start at the top with what the difference between
1: erythrocytosis and polycythemia even is and why that matters. Erythrocytes are the red blood cells, okay? So whenever those increase, that is erythrocytosis. That is what you see with testosterone therapy, Polycythemia is a term that often gets used interchangeably when people are looking at the complete blood count with erythrocytosis, but they are not the same thing. Polycythemia affects many red blood cells, hence the term poly at the beginning of the word, and that includes the white blood cells and the platelets. Simply put, they're not the same thing, but in the medical community, the terms get thrown around interchangeably. So a lot of the confusion comes from those terms and the verbiage between the two. Unfortunately, you're going to hear from primary care doctors, cardiologists, hematologists, that they are the same thing. But as you said at the intro, the evidence does not support that testosterone actually increases the risk of blood clots or stroke or cardiovascular events. We talked about that Mayo Clinic consensus article in a previous show I would encourage anybody who's thinking about testosterone therapy to just read about that or any provider that is prescribing testosterone should also really be reading that because it summarizes the evidence and high-quality evidence at that. And we know that there's not an increased risk based on all the existing evidence of blood clots, strokes, or cardiovascular events on testosterone, whereas with that rare blood disorder, polycythemia that is a bone marrow cancer, that does increase the risk of blood clots and mortality and morbidity associated with that.
0: So even more so than the providers thinking about prescribing testosterone or that are prescribing testosterone, the medical providers that really need to read that study are the ones that are telling patients to get off of the testosterone. I think.
1: Exactly. And I think that just like I wouldn't comment on something that is not my specialty, I really think that if we are making these comments, we should know what we're talking about. We should know the evidence before telling our patients not to be on testosterone or that they need to donate blood or come off or decrease their dose because really there's nothing that supports that. So let's talk about what labs you're running to
0: even open up the conversation or the primary care doctors running to open up the conversation to even discuss erythrocytosis or polycythemia?
1: So pretty standardly on a yearly lab panel, if you're getting regular labs with your primary care doctor, you're going to have a complete blood count, which does look at the white blood cells, the red blood cells and the platelets. So that's where they would likely see that. I guess if somebody was donating blood just out of the kindness of their heart at the Red Cross, then they may also be told that they have high levels as well. But a lot of times they don't know what the reason for that is unless somebody has already told them that they have high red blood cells in the past, like a medical provider.
0: And we're getting baseline blood counts on all patients. We are. Victory. And then we continue to monitor that through three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, et cetera, follow-up appointments. Exactly.
1: So this isn't something that we're sending our patients on their way and saying, good luck, we're going to find something. Then we're going to find it probably earlier than a lot of times they would find it at another provider. Okay, so let's say a patient
0: is on testosterone and they end up doing their annual checkup at a primary care doctor. They see that their hematocrit is slightly elevated and they blame it on the testosterone and they tell them to get off of the testosterone because it could cause a blood clot. The patient calls us or comes and sees us. What are you going to say to that patient?
1: I would say that I would definitely not recommend coming off of their testosterone because their symptoms are going to come back first of all, okay? But also, we know that we can safely prescribe testosterone based on the evidence that we've already discussed. Now, the question is, though, how do they have that conversation with their primary care doctor? Ultimately, we're not going to call and argue with primary care or any other providers about this topic. We're probably just not going to be able to have them change their minds about the subject, but I can arm them with with information about that. So there's a couple things that can be done outside of coming off of the testosterone. Yeah, that'll probably bring the blood counts back down. We could, however, also consider decreasing the dose or doing more frequent dosing to keep the levels more stable. And in some cases, switching to like from an injection to a cream, injections have been shown to increase red blood cell counts, hemoglobin and hematocrit, more than topical products too. So there's some things we can sometimes tweak before having somebody come off and then having them feel like they did when they first came in, which is usually awful. So
0: let's kind of explain a little bit more the difference between the two erythrocytosis and the polycythemia because testosterone cannot induce polycythemia, but it can induce secondary erythrocytosis.
1: That's correct. So that is, as I mentioned earlier, genetic problems. These patients have something called a positive jak 2 gene. So that's rare again. And if there was a concern, likely we would have seen all of those counts be elevated at baseline. And if I ever had a concern, which I can't think of a time that I've ever had somebody come in with elevated white blood cells, red blood cells and platelets on initial consult here. But if I did, I'd probably suggest that they have a workup before starting testosterone so that they can be treated because those patients, the treatment is a medical phlebotomy so that they reduce the risk of blood clots. In erythrocytosis, that is not the treatment. There's other conditions that actually increase red blood cell counts as well. And we don't phlebotomize for these problems. In fact, could be dangerous if we were to phlebotomize. So, for instance, a COPD, those increased red blood cells help to carry oxygen. If you were to phlebotomize a patient as a treatment for something that is caused by their COPD, that could be very dangerous. Now, COPD does increase cardiovascular risk, but it's not because of the red blood cell counts. That's a mechanism that's a response to the disease process itself. Other conditions that increase red blood cell counts would be smoking. Now, again, increased risk for cardiovascular events, but we all know that that is not because of the red blood cell counts. Okay. We know that smoking is dangerous. End of story. Dehydration can cause the red blood cell counts to go up. So, if a patient is having their labs drawn, ideally they should be well hydrated anyway. Not only because that might make it easier to draw their blood, but so that we don't see an elevation in the red blood cell counts. And then also, patients living at elevation too. And we're not seeing, an increased risk of people dropping out from strokes and blood clots out in, say, Colorado, for instance. That is just, again, a mechanism of the body. And we're looking at something on paper, and we're extrapolating information from a completely different disease process and putting it on another issue completely. Let's talk about that. People living at elevation, high-performing
0: athletes, they have elevated hematocrit, and hemoglobin levels. But it's not like there's lines out the doors at these phlebotomy places to have these medical phlebotomies done because they're at somehow an increased risk of heart attack or stroke. So how did we get to this point?
1: (laughs) Misinformation, again, just taking evidence from another disease process. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's just one of those things where you learn something and maybe, you know, this is something being taught in medical school or what have you, and we're putting that conclusion on another problem, even though the literature and the science does not support that. To date, there has been no randomized control trials or systematic reviews that show an increased risk of blood clots, stroke, or cardiovascular events on testosterone. It is a safe treatment. It has been used safely in the medical world for over eight years. Do I think it's going to change soon? Probably not, but I do want to make sure my patients feel safe using it as well.
0: And since we talked about high-performing athletes, I like to use the Lance Armstrong example because I feel like guys can relate to, they follow a lot of sports and can relate to his story and kind of make sense of this. But Lance Armstrong used blood doping to compete at a higher level. And the reason why he did this is because he wanted his blood counts to be higher, to carry more oxygen to his muscles and tissues, to have better stamina, endurance, to compete in these races. So he would, quote, do a medical phlebotomy, They would store it in a freezer and then they would administer it to him prior to The race and also infusing him would also increase those blood counts and increase that oxygen level. He would kind of skirt the system to not get caught by then doing another infusion of saline to bring down those counts. That's how he was kind of cheating the system and diluting them. Yeah. And didn't get caught for a very long time, but he was purposely wanting to carry those higher levels of oxygen. And it correlates back to the men living in Colorado. They need those higher levels of oxygen to live at that altitude.
1: Yeah. And actually our Olympic training facility is in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And there is a reason that athletes train at high altitudes. <laughs> it helps increase their performance. So is it really a bad thing? Uh, not not if we look at the literature.
0: What are the dangers of over phlebotomizing? And if a patient's at a clinic that are having them phlebotomize regularly, let's talk about the implications of that.
1: So really the biggest thing is if you are donating blood too often, whether it's for medical purposes or you're donating at the Red Cross, you very well may deplete your iron stores. And so some of those symptoms that they might have come in with in the first place with their low testosterone, fatigue, irritability, all those things that they want out of testosterone, they're negating some of those benefits by donating. So we don't want to cause a new issue to treat a non-issue. And to be honest those phlebotomies, they're only going to temporarily treat the problem. So you're talking maybe days to weeks that you're lowering your hemoglobin and hematocrit in order to make somebody happy about a problem that doesn't exist. And now we're creating a new issue in that process too. So what are we doing about all those other days and weeks that we're not phlebotomizing too? just doesn't make a whole lot of sense really.
0: And I don't want to act like we've never phlebotomized somebody at Victory Men's Health. So why don't you speak to that?
1: So we do monitor, we kind of look at the endocrinology guidelines, and there's a arbitrary cutoff of fifty-four percent for the hematocrit. And the current guidelines actually suggest that a patient who has a hematocrit above fifty-four should either be stopping testosterone, decreasing their dose, or coming off of it, or some combination of those things. So we can use a phlebotomy again, it is a temporary fix, however, I educate the patients on the difference between erythrocytosis and polycythemia, but I really would rather not cause or worsen an iron deficiency to treat a non-issue. Now, if there are other providers, they're having a surgery, their primary care doctor's worried about it, we can let them do a phlebotomy. It's not something that I would require though, just based on a arbitrary number that is based on a cutoff that has nothing to do with blood clots. Yeah. Exactly. And for
0: people wanting to deep dive into these endocrine recommendations and studies, I'm going to attach some podcasts that Dr. Neil Rousier has done, and he is phenomenal at this, and he does a great job explaining these studies, and you're going to find that in the show notes. And I wanted to mention this earlier and didn't get a chance to. Some of it's anecdotal clinical experience, and some of it's from the American Urology Association's annual meeting, but they estimate that the baseline change in hematocrit for patients on testosterone injections is about 6%. And that can happen in about 44% of patients. And then with testosterone gel, they estimate that the average increase over baseline hematocrit is about 2.5%. And it can happen in 18% of the patients. And then with the pellets, they don't call out the baseline change, but it can happen in up to 25% of the patients. I do want to note that they state that with the injections, though, they believe, that it has to do with the frequency of injection and the dose of the testosterone, and that lowering the dose with more frequent injections would lower that baseline change and lower the number of patients that the hematocrit increases in.
1: Yeah, and a lot of that's really for stable symptom control is why I'm doing that most often, but it is sometimes a way that I can help bring down those hemoglobin and hematocrit in somebody who another provider that they're seeing might be worried. So I can maybe kill two birds with one stone there. That's a great
0: way to frame that. And I should also point out that the expert analysis from the Urology Association meeting that I just mentioned states that the evidence does not support this claim or myth that testosterone induced erythrocytosis causes any adverse cardiovascular event and that the relationship was made without being thoroughly investigated. So I just want to hammer that home. Okay, so that is all for today. If you have any questions, please email me at podcast at amystuttle.com. This podcast is growing with every episode and we're getting a lot of new listeners, which is awesome. But I also need those listeners to like, follow and rate the show. That helps tremendously. And just a reminder that this is not intended to be medical advice and you need to speak with your physician in regards to your healthcare. I hope everyone has a great day.